Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. We're up to episode number 96 this week. Uh, I'm Ryan McLeod and I'm joined by Kirsty Maguire. Um, something a little bit different this week. Um, I mean, for one, uh, it is the first remote episode that I've recorded. So one thing I would say is just bear with me on the sound quality. I'm still working through a few little issues with that. Um, we'll get there. Um Kirsty is going to take us on an adventure. Um, it's a trip that she sort of was lucky enough to, to take a year away from her architecture practice. She runs a passive house architecture company out of Wasp Studios. And yeah, this sort of all these factors aligned and allowed her to sort of take this time away. Um, and she used it to go, to, I mean, basically the ends of the earth. So almost as far north as you can go and almost as far south um yeah there's mountains there's crazy stealth navy ships there's hidden pubs there's um getting lost in crevasses there's all manner of exciting sort of adventures within a massive adventure so um yeah i mean you'll, you'll probably notice that i don't really say very much in this episode um yeah, I mean, Kirsty just tells the story so well, I, I felt like I was getting in the way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose there's not really much else to say other than uh, enjoy. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Let's get into the episode. So this is number 96 with Kirsty Maguire. So in early 2018, I bought a one-way ticket to the high arctic i didn't know how i was going to get home but this was part of the excitement it wasn't actually intentional i had intended to buy a return ticket but for some reason the airlines it must have been updating their website or something so i planned it all out went to buy the one way up got it tried to buy a ticket home and failed but i think this is actually a great thing because it, it meant it meant that I was really open to opportunities as they came along and actually it really set the tone for the whole of the adventure that I had. So I took a, nearly a year off in 2018-2019 from my architecture practice and managed to go to the ends of the earth almost literally. Not quite, didn't make it to the poles but not far away at all. So this had really been a dream for a long time. And a lot of things conspired to make it possible. So I run a small architecture practice in, based in Dundee, a micro business, but working all over the world. And it just so happened that all of my projects were coming to an end at the same time. Now, this is something that I could never have planned. I can't imagine how this happened. And initially, I had a bit of a panic because I was was employing someone and had several other colleagues who were working with me. But then in the middle of the night, I woke up and had this moment of realisation that actually this could be a real opportunity and it's not going to come along again anytime soon. And so I decided to take it, because <laughs> why not? <laughs> and it coincided with me receiving an email from some friends who have a sailing boat and at the time the sailing boat was in the north of Norway and the email said something like would you like to come and join us to sail to Svalbard which is the far north not that far from the North Pole the closest we got was about 650 nautical miles away from the North Pole but it's not too often that these emails drop into my inbox and it's pretty hard to say no to that kind of opportunity especially when you've just realised that you've got the time to do it. So naturally, I put my hand up and said, yes, please, I'd like to come. But this was this was great, actually, because I think if I, if I just decided to take a year off work but didn't have something like that to make sure that I actually did, it might have been a bit too scary. It would have been tempting to take on other projects and I'll just do this little one and I'll just do that. But actually, having that, focus was brilliant. So in June 2019, 
2018, I got on my flight, not really knowing how I was getting home. With a brief pause in Oslo, in Norway, met one of my fellow sailor travellers, and then we headed up and met the boat in Svalbard. So Svalbard, if you can, if you don't know where it is, maybe have a look on the map. But also, if you can imagine the northern part of Greenland and the northern part of Alaska and the northern part of, of Russia, more or less in line with all of them. So pretty much as far as you can go without heading to the poles. And um, I had actually been there before. It's not as inaccessible as it sounds, actually. There are regular flights that go there from Norway. And it is possible to go on short trips, but there are polar bears there, so you can't go anywhere without a guide unless you have your own bear protection and are trained in using it by you have flares and so on and as a last resort a gun um, which thankfully we didn't have to use at all um, but previously we'd been walking and that was maybe 15 years ago bird and bird watching and that was amazing but you can obviously only see so much of that at, at that pace and it's a archipelago of small islands and big fjords so it's pretty inaccessible unless you have your own boat. So going on a boat was really the business. And there's so much to see. I think it's easy to imagine that these places are untouched wildernesses. But of course, that's not true. There's an amazing history. Some of the high and low points of human behaviour in terms of whaling and killing beachables of walruses and and seals and general, generally plundering the landscape. Um, but now there's much more about conservation, which of course is fantastic, and trying to minimise our impact. There is a massive amount of change happening because of climate um, warming, and it's really, really visible in these areas, which was very interesting but also at some points gave us some trouble we can talk about that later um, but the landscape is stunning it's initially it appears to be bleak wild barren but as you get your eyes into it and start to see the subtleties there's a huge amount of color the change between the different seasons is amazing. The summer, of course, is very short, so the growing season is only really a few weeks. So flowers, one year they might grow some leaves, another year they might grow a bud, next year it might flower, um, next year it might have its um, seeds and so on. So everything happens very slowly. But what, as well as the, the wildlife, which was incredible on the landscape, what was interesting was going to see some of the human habitations is a Russian settlement, Pomedon, which was one of their great postings to go to as a coal mine. But it was abandoned suddenly in the I think mid nineties. And more or less everything is left the ghost town. Left as it was. So wandering around there is really interesting. Of course, parts of it are falling into ruin now. Um, and it's been taken over by the wildlife, so foxes roaming around and reindeer. And the apartment blocks are now seabird colonies. So what sort of size was the, the settlement? Um... It would have been hundreds of people living there, possibly probably thousands. I don't actually know how many inhabitants there were. But there is yeah, apartment blocks like you would see in a city. There was municipal swimming pool, library, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and it was all set out like a model town. 
all with the backdrop of this coal mine, which must have been horrendous to work in, um, and the wild weather. And we were we were pretty lucky with the weather, mostly. It's a bit like going on holiday in Scotland, except more so. You're in the high Arctic, not that far from the North Pole, and you really don't know what you're going to get. And you just have to play it by ear. And of course, if you're sailing around somewhere here in Scotland, you're not that far away from the port of refuge, as, it, as we call it. If there's a storm comes, you can head inland and hide, it, hide from it. There, there's not that many safe anchorages, so it's constantly looking at the weather. We did have satellite phone where we could get wind information and see what was coming and trying to make sure that we were not putting ourselves in danger because, of course, if something were to go wrong, then it's very difficult to also to get help. So it's more about keeping safe and enjoying everything. But everyone on board is an experienced sailor. We've got some exceptionally experienced sailors on board and some people like myself who've done a lot of sailing, but I'm a theoretically qualified to skipper boat, but haven't done that much of it independently. So everyone there was capable of, of sailing the boat. So like, um, how, I mean, how, give us an idea of the scale of this sort of boat or trip. Um, but how many of you were, were on that and how big a boat are we talking about? Oh yeah, that would be useful, wouldn't it? So, <laughs> so it's a small, it's friends, there were, the boat is a 40 foot boat and it's fiberglass so it's not built for this type of sailing at all. Any ice is very dangerous so we're constantly on the lookout for ice and actually the hardest bits of ice to see the small ones the little growlers that float around um, and some of them are white but some of them are clear some of them are gathered up grub from the bottom of the sea and are quite dark but when if you can imagine a windy day where it's where there's some white water um, on the on the waves it's very hard to tell the difference between a bit of ice and a bit of white water so so there's that so there is most of the time there were six of us on board and the boat can fairly comfortably sleep six I say comfortably you've got a small they're, they're small two-person cabins and I was sharing with a woman called Mary and you you're in your sleeping bag or a couple of sleeping bags I put one sleeping bag inside the other and you've got your, your stuff, just everything that you need for the next however long. So in this case, it was six weeks that I was away, although this part of the trip was three weeks. Just next to you, you've got a small cooking space on the boat, a galley. And um, all everything in terms of the boat being sailed happens outside. So you're always a bit cold and a bit wet um, but for some reason I don't remember about that I remember about the sunny times and the beauty and the incredible nature of things but the boat is full of food so we ate pretty well we have to plan everything in advance and we we've done that and especially um, Virginia who is one of the boat owners had spent months preparing all the food for this journey um, so, so yeah, it was all people. We all knew each other. Um, it was all, it was all friends. It wasn't a organised trip as such. Um, but I think again, one of the great things about it, the openness to changing your plans, and you have to do that when you're doing a, a trip like this. But we headed as far north as we could. We were hoping to break the 80 degree um, latitude, but we didn't quite get there. The furthest north we got was the 79 degrees 16 
minutes, so almost, but not quite. But there was a storm with forecast, so we headed south again to the closest port. There's only a couple of them really in the area, but this was a research station near Allison. And unless you're a researcher or on a cruise ship, the cruise ships go in there regularly. You get a couple of hours on the land and then head away again. But unless you're either of those, it's almost impossible to actually visit the place. So we we went in in a very strong wind with very impressive boat handling by our most experienced sailor, the chief sailor on board, into a tiny little port, and then stayed there for a couple of days until the wind went down again. But we'd heard tell of a secret pub in this place, because there's about 150 researchers there, and so they, you know, they need to go and let us see every now and then. It's not, it's not something that no one could go into, but it's definitely not advertised in any way. So we we heard about this, and we heard tell that they sell hot dogs as well and cheap beer. So we thought we'd, we'd go on a little wander about. The only reason we knew that this was the right place was because it's all historic-looking houses, very small village, but historic-looking houses. And this particular one had all the blinds down. Looked like no one was at home, apart from the fact that there were loads of shoes outside and a couple of bikes, because they're not allowed. They, or they, they don't they take their shoes off when they go into the buildings. So we thought, oh, this must be it. So we looked a bit closer in the door, and there it was. It was the, the secret pub, and they welcomed us in. We got our hot dogs and and a drink, sat down, sat, and there was a pub quiz. So we joined in on this and um, almost won it, but actually, thankfully, we didn't because it was obviously a major social event of the week. <laughs> But the next door table was a, a Scotsman called Rory McDougall, fantastic West Coast name, who was working up there. And it turns out that he worked for the Norwegian Space, Space Agency and he was project managing a rocket launch build um, just up, up the road. So he invited us to go to see his rocket launcher um, in construction. So next day, came and picked us up and we all crammed into a little minibus and you drive up. But there's only a few kilometres of road in this place. And the main road that we needed to go on, or the only road that we needed to go on, actually was partly along the dirt runway or adjacent to the dirt runway. And there's a traffic signal, obviously red, when there's a plane coming in, you have to wait. <laughs> anyway, we, we got past this and headed up there and got two around the. So this is Norwegian and NASA, Norwegian Space Agency and NASA collaboration to launch rockets to investigate the Northern Lights. So, as an architect and someone who's interested in these kind of things, it was one. Of, you know, it was pretty exciting to to get to go to a construction site up there unexpectedly. There's all sorts of little bits and pieces that you get opportunities and that you could never have expected. Um, and people are really super friendly and helpful. Um, when the um, when are the rockets planned to to launch? Um, I think they were planning to launch some. Maybe six months after that, so it would have been at the start of last year. So back that just over a year ago. So did you watch the launch? I didn't watch the launch. Now I don't know if it was live streamed, but I did look to see what was happening. Um, it's they're fairly small, I have to say, in comparison to the ones that you or I would imagine. From big rocket launches. So yeah, I take it they're like, unmanned. They are unmanned. Yes, this is definitely out of my sphere of knowledge. <laughs> but, <laughs> they send them up into a uh, lower part of the atmosphere, I believe. It could be. This is all 
from memory. Um, and then they take their measurements and they drop back down again into the sea. So they obviously have to make sure there's no shipping in the way and things like this. Um, and I think they launch them from different parts of the world, but this is something maybe I need to go and look up on their website. <laughs> As it happens, this uh, we ended up later on cycling through Norway, through Arctic Norway, and actually passed the space agency. And I hadn't really realised it was going to be there, so I hadn't paid proper attention to exactly where it was based, and suddenly realised it was going past all these antennae and put two and two together. So, and we saw a lot. But there were a few, there's always a few ups and downs on these kind of trips, and at one stage we find water rapidly appearing over the floor of the boat, which is somewhat suboptimal. Luckily, it turns out we rapidly realised that it was coming from internally from the drinking water, the tap had broken, rather than up through the hull of the boat, which would have been significantly worse, of course. But at the same time, the gas, well, cooked on gas, but that had failed as well. So all of a sudden we had no water and no gas. We had our backup drinking water and backup camping stove that went back to the main city Longy Bay and sorted it out. And again, people are very friendly and helpful and we realised that things need to happen. So it all have, we managed to get a new tap pretty quickly, sorted out the gas and off we went again. And ultimately, Think, looking at the history was one of the really interesting things for me and um, the wildlife. So at one stage we are in this big fjord and a massive pod of beluga whales went past us and there's only, well I hadn't actually realised in my ignorance that beluga whales are white. And I don't know, there's maybe 80 whales. In every direction you could see these little family pods of whales coming up and swimming by and we were completely insignificant. So moments like that are really special. But all, things, all good things have to come to an end. And we obviously then had to start heading back southwards. And by this stage, I had decided to join the guys on the boat, sailing the boat back to Norway. So rather than needing a flight, um, they were going where I wanted to go, which was northern Norway. So we set off across the Barents Sea. And the Barents Sea is pretty shallow, so the waves are quite bad, and it's grey and windy and cold, and all in all fairly godforsaken. <laughs> I'm pleased they did it. But I can't say I enjoyed it. <laughs> so it took us about four and a half days to get to northern Norway, and it was against the wind all of the way. So that's the least pleasant direction to sail. The waves were pretty big and messy, and when you're looking up at the crest of the wave from the bottom of it, and you're outside in your sailing boat, it does make you think, really about why on earth you might want to be there. Um, <laughs> it also can be stunningly beautiful because there's nothing but you and the ocean and some birds. But I have to say I was really seasick and this is not pleasant. <laughs> but I was well looked after by my fellow sailors. And the way, the way that it works is you're on watch. So you take it in turns to be awake because you're sailing continuously. And we have three hours on, three hours off for the four and a half, five days that we were moving. And there were three of us on each watch. So 
there's always someone to steer, someone to do other elements, someone to sort out food. And you'll swap around. Steering is great because you get to see what's happening and it's actually the best place to be if you're feeling a little bit rough. And then, of course, heading back after your watch, heading back downstairs and trying to get back into your sleeping bag, warm up and get a little bit of sleep. But, of course, the boat is constantly moving. So, thing, you know, you're getting thrown around all the time. Nothing's stable. Going to the toilet is a challenge. Um, there's one point where I opened the door to the it's a tiny little toilet it's called the heads. Open the door after finish using it. Pretty much get thrown across the boat into the sink. <laughs> the boat's heeling over. Um, it feels like about 45 degrees. It wouldn't have been quite that much, but you know, it always feels worse than it is. And I have to climb back up to my bunk. Um, along something that theoretically should be horizontal and it's bucking like a bucking bronco so and this is just life life at sea but i mean like in any of this you don't seem to have any like fear i feel like none of the none of the stuff you've said in any way seems to have been like that i mean my only real point of reference for this type of stuff is like the deadliest catch type programs which yeah to me look absolutely terrifying but I think I mean there's always an underlying element of I'm not sure concern at certain points obviously your anxiety levels go up and down but I was pretty sure that the boat was much more robust than I was and Everyone has ups and downs on these kind of extreme pressures, I suppose, and people deal with that in different ways. And the important thing is that not everyone has a down at the same time, and that is very unlikely to happen. And it brings out the strengths in different people in different ways as well. So because I was really sick, I really struggled to keep calories in the body. So, of course, my blood sugar dropped. And that's that's bad because then you get cold, it's hard to function, it's hard to eat, so it's a vicious circle. But you know, there's one of the particular low points was I was on the wheel, so I was steering, which was a good place to be. But I was so my blood sugar was so low that I just had tears streaming down my face, and didn't really you know know how to get myself back out of this hole. But of course, the other two on watch just looked after me and um, managed to feed me some food that I managed to keep down and warm me up and put me back to bed and so on. So, you know, that was a particular low point for me. Um, but I know there are obviously moments of anxiety, I think, for everyone. You wouldn't be sane if you didn't have those. I think when you're in it, you're dealing with it and you're dealing with the controllables. Um, you know, we did have plans for if a massive storm came, what would we do? And that's just, I look, you know, thankfully that's out of my scope of experience. But you know, there is, there are things that you should do when you're at sea if that scenario happens. Obviously, we, we're looking at the weather, so the first intention is you don't get yourself into that scenario in the first place if you can avoid it. I mean. The other thing is other shipping. There's very little shipping there, so it's always keeping a lookout. We did have a what we assume was a Norwegian army, uh, navy rather, ship came to check us out, <laughs> uh, and it was very James Bond. It was looked very modern, sleek, slick. It didn't have any of its navigation stuff going, which all shipping. I guess, apart from military, as, again, I'm no expert on that, but just snuck up on the side of the mist. So we couldn't really see anything further than maybe half a kilometre maximum away from us, just surrounded by thick fog and sea. And this ship appears out lurking along 
and then disappears as silently as it appeared. So, so they didn't say anything or like communicate anything at all. No. And the, this, and the only place we could stop on this journey back to Norway was this tiny little island called Bear Island. It's this rock, more or less halfway between Svalbard and northern Norway. And under most conditions, I would have thought it was a horrendous place, godforsaken. But actually, I was so pleased to see it <laughs> because it's got this, it's got a harbour or an anchorage, I should say. Harbours rather devastating it because it's just a a small anchorage that must have been used by the whalers in the past. So we went in there and I was feeling horrendous. So I went, I was allowed to go to sleep to recover, which was great. One of the others were doing better than me at this stage and they fixed the boat and did a few other bits and pieces and also had a rest. And then we got going and headed further south again. But there's two mountains on this. Island. One of them is called Misery Mountain, and the other one is called Antarctica Mountain. Which my only my personal pet theory is that someone had a sponsor for their whaling or something, and they took them up to this place and pretended that they were in Antarctica. Clearly, this is probably untrue, <laughs> but that's my pet theory. Um, but ultimately, when this was all over, we, we managed to make it to Norway without having to tack. We thought we might have ended up in Russia by accident, but thankfully we made it to the very tip of northern Norway. And we arrived, and it was a beautiful sunny day. There was colour, there were flowers, there were colourful housing. Um, it was like paradise. So I hopped off the boat and kissed the ground and was delighted to see <laughs> Um, so of course it's pretty difficult to wash in a little boat like this and things especially when you're in those conditions so we went for a swim in the sea which was blissful and um, sunbathed and generally recovered for a bit dried everything out because inevitably the boat gets quite damp so all our bedding and clothes and everything right in the sun and then an overnight sail through the midnight sun down to Tromsø, where I got off the boat and the others sailed off further south. And after such an intense experience like that, watching the boat disappear without you is a really weird experience. <laughs> I felt quite bereft for a little while. Um, um, but then I had a few, a few days rest in Tromsø, which is a beautiful city, so I can recommend to go there if you've not been. It's surrounded by mountains and a fantastic public transport system. So I could just hop on a bus and 20 minutes later I'd be out in the, in the mountains. And I happened to be there in heatwave. So you can't get much better than that. But I still didn't really have a plan. And I discovered, thanks to this woman, Virginia, who's here mentioned, to, um, who owns the boat, she's pointed out a bike hire place to me in Thompson. So I'd been in to see them thinking to hire a bike maybe for a day. And it turns out that they do this amazing system where they'll hire your bike and you can sail you can cycle it down the coast. And when you're done with it, as long as you get to a point where you're at or you're at a port where their Hurtigruten ferries go, you just put the bike on the Hurtigruten ferry and it delivers itself back. So I'd been wondering how, I thought I'll go to Lofoten Islands and I'd wondered how to get there. Well, this answers my question. Um, so um, a friend came out and met me and we got a tandem and cycled down, <laughs> uh, down the northwest islands of Norway. And because I'd come from so far north, it became my ambition to cross the Arctic Circle. So this is an entirely notional thing, of course, but that that was my destination. Just just to check something, um, why a tandem? Um, well, partly because we're very uh, mismatched in terms of cycling ability. So 
that this helped, um, and they happen to have a tandem that they could rent. Because yeah, I mean, it's pretty unusual. You don't see many tandems about. No, you don't see many tandems. <laughs> I mean, it was great to do. I'm not sure I would rush to buy a tandem, but um, it was a good solution and yeah, good to have done. But Northern Norway is amazing. The roads are beautiful. There's not really potholes. People are friendly. It's really sparsely populate, populated. So there, and their rules about outdoor access are even better than in Scotland. And so camping is really popular, and you can, you know, within reason, you can camp pretty much anywhere you like. So, so it's camping and cycling and camping and cycling and a little bit of hill walking and exploring other things. And it's extremely civilised after being up in the far north as <laughs> well, I think, generally. Um, so it's beautiful. And we, it was about 850 kilometres of cycling that we did. And yeah, I think it was almost like a welcome rest especially because it was such beautiful weather. And in fact, something I certainly didn't expect to happen, which did happen, was I got heat stroke in the Arctic. And so I actually had to stop camping for a couple of days because it's 24-hour daylight, so there's no respite from the sun. And so I actually had to go and stay in a hostel. So I think that kind of one question that I'm often asked is, um, was this not really expensive to do? And obviously I wasn't earning during this period of time, but saved up money. But actually cycling and camping is a very cheap activity. And so Norway can be a very expensive country. And if you eat out, it's expensive. But like like most places, if you choose what you do and how you do it, it's an inexpensive activity. So so it's pretty lucky. And, And likewise on the boat, once you're on the boat, you can't really spend any money. Um, so, so that was great. Um, but I won't I won't go into as much detail about the sailing, the cycling through Norway. Um, it was great, but it was more civilized, I suppose. So felt less out there in comparison. Um, and popped home for a week. Had a nice shower, um, saw some friends and my family, and then headed to the other end of the world and got on another sailing boat because I loved crossing the Barents Sea so much that got on another sailing boat. So this was a 74-foot aluminium hull boat, so it's much more built for the wild wilds of the southern ocean in this case. So flew down to the Falkland Islands, met a bunch of folks that I didn't know in Chile on the way, ended up yeah in the Falkland Islands and got on Pelagic Australis, which is a well-known sailing boat. Um, and we cast off and headed to South Georgia, which is around about 800 nautical miles east-southeast south, well, of the Falkland Islands. It's where Shackleton, that is very famous traverse, where he managed to keep all his guys safe after they got stuck in the ice in Antarctica. And our good ship Discovery has been down there. The last time I went into the Discovery Museum, I was standing in the reception waiting for someone and spotted some very familiar pictures on the wall taken, I think, in the um, 1920s. Um, and the bays, unsurprisingly, haven't changed that much, although it was a whaling station at the time and that was all now in disrepair. Um, but that, again, that was fantastic. That was a group of people that I didn't know. And that was more sort of sign up and go along trip. Um, and you know, boat life 
it's very similar on both boats. This, this boat was a bit larger. So in terms of where do you sleep, sleep in a bunk. And of course, your boat's moving. You've got um, to try, so you don't fall out of your bunk. You've got a lee cloth. So when you've got into your bunk, you then you know your bunk's quite small specifically, so you don't roll around in it too much. And really, that becomes your home. So all your stuff ends up in your bunk with you. <laughs> You need a book, okay, rummage around. You need your clean socks, rummage around, um, all this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you put your lee cloth up, and then when the boat heels over, you stay in your bunk, you don't fall out. And cooking, there's this, again a small galley, everyone takes in turns to cook, and the boat is very well stocked, tons of food, you're not going to go hungry. Um, that particular boat has an amazing library of books, so if you're bored, there's no reason to be bored. But just sailing along, looking at the landscape and the birds and so on, and, and actually sailing the boat takes up obviously a lot of your time. Because again, getting there, the pass, the, um, or the Southern Ocean itself is is extremely wild. One of the wildest parts of the world and that can be a bit intimidating but again this boat is so sturdy that um, I guess if yeah, fear wasn't part of what I had in my emotions or perhaps um, excitement all these things were there and especially when you arrive and this island appears out of the ocean and initially you see some icebergs and so on. Um, because as, as you go there, the sea gets a lot colder and there's lots the Atlantic convergence where the sea suddenly gets colder. So your icebergs tend to start materialising after you've got there. But arriving and, and seeing these places that are sort of mythical in my mind, and whales and penguins and all this incredible landscape. It's at that sort of stage it's really hard to be scared, I think. Um it's more yeah, excitement and cons yeah, it's hard to really describe that feeling of all encompassing amazement, I suppose. And we did a lot of day trips, a lot of climbing, and then we, so five of us out of the 12 who were on the boat. So on that trip, there were three professional sailors. They were all extremely experienced and really interesting people to, to chat to about their travels and experiences and knowledge. But the rest of us, were different, I guess, clients for the trip and organised. This was organised by Stephen Venables, who's a well-known mountaineer. And five of us, including Stephen, went to do a ski touring trip across the Salveson Range mountains. This is about 65 kilometres of ski touring across the centre of the island, so from the south-east up to the north and intention was that we'd finish in St Andrew's Bay which is where there are 400,000 penguins and if you've seen the latest series of David Attenborough you see St Andrew's Bay with all these penguins and this yeah. I was excited about the rest of it but that really was off the scale of excitement for me um, but we thought that the actual journey would take four to five days and we'd taken 10 days of food, partly as a bit of a buffer and partly because we had hoped to do some climbing, possibly climbing the route in the interior. That didn't happen, however. The weather was so terrible that it actually took us 12 days to get to the other side. So just getting to the other side became quite an exciting mission. We did have some stunning weather, but we also spent a lot of the time in the tent stormbound or trying to ski in whiteouts on the glaciers 
and that there were times there where I was I suppose scared that we wouldn't we maybe got ourselves in a bit too deep um, but ultimately again we managed to extricate ourselves thankfully um, and that's where actually the retreat of the glaciers was particularly dark and there's one glacier where we we were going down it in whiteout which is pretty tricky because you're trying to avoid all the crevasses in the first place and we had to stop ultimately because we got ourselves stuck in a crevasse maze and we were a lot lower than we expected to be in altitude just compared to where we thought we were on the GPS because the maps are very vague they're obviously out of date the information that we do have and they're all quite large scale but two of the guys had been there before and had kept their notes of the the coordinates and we were about 150 meters lower than we thought we should be and it wasn't till the middle of the night when I woke up and realized had this moment of clarity that this is quite possibly because the glacier had ablated so it got a lot thinner and shorter and that well, we couldn't see anything at that stage because it was still white out. But once it cleared, we had to wait until it cleared so we could see where we were. And it turned out that is actually what had happened. And so two folk went off to try and find a route through the glacier and came back a few hours later. They hadn't managed to find it. So they had some lunch. And then two others went out because there's obviously not no point in all of us doing this at the same time. And they did manage to find a route through which was quite convoluted but it was successful and that was really what was important because by this stage this was the last day of our food um in fact it may have been the day after the last day of our food <laughs> and we had snacks still and i had actually put in a spare little sachet of instant potato and <laughs> I pulled it out and I was like, gentlemen, I have something for you. Um, so needless to say, that went down pretty well. I'm fairly sure it wouldn't taste as good if I had it at home, but I can tell you it tasted really good on that glacier. Um, but the last day we got up at um, about four in the morning. So it's still dark at that stage. And taking your tent down is quite epic because everything is frozen. So you put your tent up, you're on the glacier, you've pitched your tent in the snow. To get water, you have to melt water from snow. To cook anything, of course, you're on a camping stove. Um, you have to then dig your tent out because it's covered in snow and ice. All the guy ropes have got ice on them, you have to peel all that off. Um, all the You don't use tent pegs, of course, because you're on the snow, but you use your ice axe and your skis and so on. They're all covered in ice, you have to scrape all that off. And you have to um, get all your kit ready, pack it all back up in the sledges because you weren't carrying much on our backs. You just put your stuff on your back that you have for the day and then everything else goes in a sledge that you pull along called a pulk. Um, so this all takes a good couple of hours to do. And anyway, so off we set, managed to get out of our crevasse maze, continued on and then we didn't know what the stage of the next glacier was going to be like, but actually it was really smooth and a joy to ski up. And at this stage, the sun came out. We were actually roasted. So we were pretty happy and we made good time. We, we still didn't think we would get to the boat that day, but we managed to get up. There were two more calls to go over and headed down and ultimately just before sunset managed to arrive in St Andrew's Bay. So skiing through several hundred thousand penguins in the sunset after that kind of epic was absolutely amazing and we were all very delighted to see the boat and they were pretty pleased to see us I have to say as well because we were a bit overdue but yeah I hopped back on the boat after admiring the landscape and the penguins and the clouds and the sea and generally just being delighted about life hop back on the boat and sail back to the Falkland Islands, which sounds like a nice easy thing to do, but it takes five days in pretty wild weather. So. 
Um, but yeah, so after after that, spent some time in South America. My godmother lives in Chile, but she kindly hosted. Um, and took a little while to recover a bit from from that epic adventure. But slowly, well, first of all, headed up to Atacama Desert, spent some time doing unexpected things like staying in a mud hut under the stars in the Atacama Desert because that was the only option we had on the Airbnb. Um, but actually, it turned out to be amazing. And it was a woman who'd never done Airbnb. We were first guests and also a yoga studio, so I was in a little bit of heaven. Um, and then, yeah, slowly headed back towards the south. It seems to be in, in it's just like a draw to me, um, down through Patagonia. And I find myself a couple of months later in Ushuaia, right on the southern tip of South America. And not too long, you know, a couple of weeks before I was supposed to come back to the UK. Not quite sure what I was going to do with myself in that time. I was feeling a little bit underwhelmed just before Christmas. And again, I was looking in my inbox. I was slightly killing time, to be honest, looking at my email. And a sort of newsletter came out from Stephen Venables, who we were away with in South Georgia. And I'm not that good at reading newsletters, I have to say, but on this occasion I did. And it said, there's one place on the same boat going to Antarctica, leaving in about a week, a bit less than a week. Um, so um, I thought, well, that's quite interesting. I wonder where they're leaving from. Well, actually just a couple of kilometres away from where I was. So I don't know why I thought about it, but I thought about it for a little while. <laughs> and then thought, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Why would I not do this? So I scrambled to rearrange everything, rearrange heading home, try and get all my kit down from Santiago to where I was over Christmas without any kind of reliable postal system or whatever. So I'd left it with my godmother. And managed to do that with great help from a lot of people then you know some of whom I hadn't met yet <laughs> so I turned up on the boat and ended up going to Antarctica so and Antarctica is magical it's I mean, in summer which this was the generally speaking the weather is once you get far enough south the weather is much more stable than it is in South Georgia there was ski touring and climbing and sailing around and I won't give you a blow by blow account of what we did every day. Um, but I think sitting there watching the penguins and the ice and the sky and just being was possibly one of the most amazing experiences. And certainly wasn't frightening in that case. Um, and thinking about the history of all these people who've been there before, people who keep coming there, and the impact of humans in the landscape is both inspiring and horrendous in terms of what we can do, both positively and negatively. Um, so yeah, so that's that's really my trip to the end of the earth. So, I mean, I suppose I've realised I've not asked many questions. <laughs> yeah. Easiest podcast episode ever. Um, but I, I suppose the obvious one uh, for me anyway would be, so like, what are the, the, the biggest things that you've taken away from, from all of that, those uh, sort of varying experiences? Um, on one level that I think also actually links in with what's happening now is in terms of coronavirus and the changes that are happening in the world, 
is actually to take opportunities while you have them. And I think you'd asked earlier a little bit about the backstory of how this happened. I explained about practice, but also there was a number of inspirations for doing this trip. One of those was my family are very outdoorsy and my great aunt and uncle spent a lot of time in the far north. And that you know, we were always told stories and saw photographs about that when I was a child. And that's really influenced I suppose, how I, choices that I've made in my life. Um, and so I, don't, I think don't underestimate you know, how you can inspire other people in ways that might not be obvious. Um, so I suppose knowing myself and, and make, trying to make things happen. And my mum did keep asking me what was going to happen when I came back. And <laughs> I didn't know the answer to that either. <laughs> But I decided that I didn't need to know that at that stage. Um, but it was, I was very lucky that a whole series of things came together and made it happen. But also, I'd been ill for a while beforehand. So I'd had, well, I didn't know at the time, but I'd had glandular fever and then post-viral illness, for which had really knocked me for, for a couple of years. So again, you know, I suppose getting my strength back made me appreciate the ability to do these things. Um, and that you know, a lot of this was quite epic, but some parts of it were lesser, and it's just about doing what you can, whether that's a big adventure like this or small adventures, whether that's walking down to the end of the street and looking out the view across the tape. That can be pretty good as well. Um, so, so that's pretty interesting. And I suppose being open to opportunity and 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 taking that, and also I suppose enabling other people to do the same. So, it's, you know, we've talked all about me and my experience, but actually, I really enjoy helping other people with adventures. And a lot of people supported me to do this, so part of that community. And I mean, in your your practice as an as an architect, the, the sort of the environment plays a massive role in that. I'm just wondering if uh, has this experience influenced anything directly, sort of in the, your practice and how you how you go about doing your like being an architect, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, it, in many ways it links with that ethos of how important the natural world is. Arguably, flying to the Falkland Islands is not really in a very environmental thing to do. So that's that's something that has been in my mind. And I did have the idea of trying to sail there and back. And again, there was a potential for an opportunity for that, but actually because I was so seasick, I would have been useless. would have been worse than useless. It would have potentially been a liability if it's done that. So, so there are, there, I suppose it also brings up the complexities of what we like to do for ourselves and the contradictions. But yeah, it, to me, it underlined the importance of what I'm doing. Also came back really refreshed. I'm excited about work and like one thing I missed was the way I suppose with the creative element of of that and so I really enjoyed getting my teeth back into that since I've been back. So yeah I mean thanks for for telling us that like sort of explaining the epic journey that you went on um, but if anyone wants to sort of find you after this where do they do that? So if you look at my architecture website which is kirstymaguire.com I'm on Twitter as Passive House Arch and you can come along to see me at Wasps in Dundee or pretty much any of the creative Dundee events I try to be there Great, thanks very much Thanks Ryan
So thank you very much to Kirsty for being the first ever remote guest on the Creative Chit Chat podcast. Um, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed that um, amazing journey. Um, hopefully it was something a little bit different. And as I said before, I'm going to continue to put out episodes throughout this sort of period. Um, they might be every week, they might be every couple of weeks, um, but I'll try as much as I can to keep this going um, and to keep getting guests and doing the recordings um, remotely when it works for everyone. But yeah, um, if you don't already, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram um, and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and that'll keep you up to date when new episodes are released. Um, but other than that, until the next episode. Bye.